You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, our focus today will be on John 5, 30 through 47. I'll be reading verses 18 through 47. John 5, beginning with verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives Him life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may Honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name and You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, 
you will receive Him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on our sinful and arrogant souls and grant a humility on the part of those who stand condemned under Moses. Grant a humility. To hear the testimony you bring forth by your word here. The testimony Christ presents. To hear it and receive it. A humility to recognize that we do not stand in judgment over Jesus. But Jesus stands in judgment over us. And yet, he's provided a witness to the grace and salvation. That he, that he is. So grant them repentance and faith. Grant that they would hear this witness and receive it, believe it, and trust in Christ. And Father, may it freshly wash over us, your people, today. May our faith be freshly kindled. And may we live, leave zealous to testify of Christ. In His name we pray, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who prevents war, poverty, and disease. He's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Very true. And yet, I think we might say Lewis gave the ancient man too much credit. While our Lord walked this earth, as the Jews were consistently judging Him, They were, an expressing, they were expressing a sin that has roots going all the way back to Eden. In trying to be like God, we also want to make God like man. We sit in judgment. We might still believe in a God who is judge, but we've remade Him in our image so that we fare better under that judgment. We've tried to flip the court, and Jesus here flips it back right side up. He brings us back to reality. He calls forth witnesses, witnesses to his identity. But in doing so, 
it's critical that we realize it is not Jesus, but man who is on trial as Jesus calls forth these witnesses. Man is not without a witness to God, and for this reason, man stands guilty and condemned for rejecting this witness. All have the witness of general revelation. It's a revelation that's given generally. That is, it is received by all men. None escape this witness. The witness of general revelation, which would include creation, providence, God's sovereign ordering of the happenings of this world, creation, providence, and man's conscience. All bear witness. Romans 1.18 tells us that the eternal power and divine nature of God are revealed to man. They are clearly perceived, it says. And then additionally, as man suppresses that witness of general revelation, there comes also this general revelation. That the wrath of God is upon man for his suppressing that testimony of creation, providence, and his conscience. Look honestly around at this world and you cannot escape these two conclusions. One, God is and he is powerful. And two, he is angry. He is just... We are condemned. We are not without witness. General revelation says there is an eternal God, our creator. And we have sinned against him. And we are justly condemned. General revelation says there is an eternal God. We are infinitely sinful and are condemnation. We are under a cursed condemnation. Now, all men have that witness, but some additionally have the witness of special revelation. All have the witness of general revelation. Some have the witness of special revelation. And though that witness of special revelation speaks more clearly concerning our sin, and it speaks more profoundly concerning God's glory that we've sinned against. It does so as a presupposition for another purpose. To testify of the triune God's redemption of sinful man. It witnesses to these truths. This witness has long been in the custody of the Jews. It's long been set before them. And now the light of that redemptive revelation is nearing its zenith manifestation in Christ. Crucified and resurrected. It's right before them and yet despite all of that, they remain blind. So blind that they think that they are on the judgment bench and it is Jesus who is in the dock. In light of this witness... This day for them is either a great day of sin or a great day of salvation. And 
souls, the same witness is put before you right now by the word. Creation speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the heinousness of your sins. It speaks of your condemnation and the terror of His wrath. And Scripture speaks louder still of all those things, but adds to it. There is salvation in Christ. And this witness, this testimony is set before you today. And so in light of it, for you, this day is either a day of great sin or great salvation. Today, because of this witness, heaven will either be bright on the horizon of your future or hell will be hotter because of how you hear this testimony. Realize that you sit in the dock with the Jews today. Don't try to flip the courtroom as they do. Jesus is calling forth witnesses. Not because you stand in judgment over Him. He is calling forth witnesses as an act of mercy and grace to you as you sit condemned on the dock. Condemned. Not on trial. You are condemned. And Jesus is calling forth witnesses and He's saying, listen. Because if you receive this witness that you hear today, you will be saved. Receive Him and there is life. Reject Him. And you don't simply remain in your sin. Your sin is exponentially compounded. Because now you've not only suppressed the revelation of creation. You have rejected the revelation of salvation. How you receive this testimony is a matter of life and death. That's what's set before you. Receive it and there is life. Reject it and there is death. Receive it and you will leave this court. You will leave the court justified. Reject it and you will remain in your condemnation. You will come under greater condemnation. Jesus' words in verse 30 reassert the central claim that's being made. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him, him who sent me. The central claim that's reasserted there is the one that he established in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Comes again in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. This had come about because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, telling him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And all the controversy erupts because Jesus said, take up your bed. It wasn't the getting up, it wasn't the walking, it was the take up your bed that caused all this controversy because the Jewish authorities see this man and prosecute him for breaking the Sabbath. It's learned that Jesus is the one who told them to take up his bed. 
And so now the prosecution is aimed at him. We read in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. The persecution was a prosecution of the same sort that they brought against the man who they saw carrying his bed for breaking the Sabbath, an interrogation, a questioning, accusations. And thus it is that we read Jesus answered them, verse 17. That word for answered heightens and sustains the legal tone of this whole passage. Jesus answered them, saying, my father's working until now, and I am working. And that answer does not uh, alleviate any tension. It doesn't diffuse the situation. It makes it more volatile. It increases the prosecution that they seek to bring against Jesus. Now they accuse him not only of having broken the Sabbath, but now he's blaspheming. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Sabbath breaking itself was a capital offense. Blasphemy also was, and it was the more serious charge. I think they knew that their accusations of Sabbath breaking were thin. And that's why they never really pushed it the way they did blasphemy. Jesus, by His work, never made a shilling, a denarius. It wasn't for some kind of benefit financially that he ever did any of that work they accused him of, others benefited because of his work on the Sabbath. So I don't think they ever pressed that one hard. It would again and again be something they would bring up, but I think they knew they couldn't run with it. But the charge of blasphemy, they were relentless with. Mark 14, 61 through 64. But he remained silent and made no Answer. This is Jesus on trial. And Mark tells us he made no answer there. Same word. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further? Witnesses, do we need? We have all heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So this is the same prosecution that they execute ultimately at his crucifixion begins right here. And Jesus answers them again in verse 19. The ESV leaves a word completely untranslated. You don't have it in the ESV. And so let me give it to you with the ESV and the New King James meshed together. Then Jesus answered, same word you had in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And everything that follows from that point, verses 20 through 47, is all commentary on that central claim Jesus is making. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. All commentary on that, and commentary on how they receive that claim. And so Jesus brings forth all these witnesses now. He must recognizing, reasserting that claim in verse 30. But he's reasserting that claim having established in between verses 18 and 30 that he is the judge. Verse 22, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is answering them as the one who stands as judge, reasserts his central claim in verse 30, and begins to call forth witnesses, not because he needs them, but because graciously he puts them before them for their sake. He opens by telling them that if he alone bears witness about himself, his witness is not true, verse 31. And many have said this is because Jesus is appealing to the standard of the law that he gave his people. Several times we see it, but one instance, Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so the idea would be, I bear witness to myself, my witness is not true. The idea would be not that it's false, but that it's legally invalid. It doesn't count if it's alone. I think Jesus is saying something much more profound than that. I think he's not saying, if I alone bear witness, my testimony is invalid in a legal setting. I believe he's saying, if I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. And the reason he's saying that is because of the central premise he's been laying down. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. My Father's working and I'm working until now. The Son can do nothing of His own accord. But whatever He sees the Father doing, He does. The Father's works and the Son's works are inseparable. And so if, the fa- if Jesus alone gives testimony to who He is, He is not the Son, and His witness is not true. Their works are inseparable. Thus the Father is bearing witness to the Son. This all tells you who the another witness is that He's speaking of. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that He bears about me is true. This is the same witness Jesus spoke of in chapter 3, 11 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of 
heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who is the we Jesus refers to there? It is... In John, the witness or testimony to Christ concerning the disciples' witness always lies in the future. It's true we've seen Philip bring Nathaniel to Jesus, Andrew bring Peter to Jesus. That's true. But the witness is largely as considered as something future. Not like in the synoptic gospels where you have Jesus sending out the 12 and the 70. All of that lies ahead. John 15, 27. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Besides the witness of the apostles, the only other witness we see to Jesus on a human plane in the book of John is John the Baptist. He's it. And Jesus will soon make it clear that John the Baptist is not the another witness that he's referring to here. So who is this we? The another is the we, the other party of that we that Jesus refers to in John chapter 3. And the we is this another who works alongside of Jesus. The we is the same entity involved in Genesis 1 when we hear, let us make man in our own image. The works of the Father are inseparable from the works of the Son. Let us make man in our own image. And now that same us, indivisibly in His working, is testifying to Jesus' identity. The another witness is the Father, whose work is inseparable from the Son. In chapter 8, the Pharisees will object. 8.13 You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And after telling them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. After telling them that, he goes on to say, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus does bear witness about himself, but he doesn't do so alone. If he did it alone, his witness would be false. His works would be separable from the Father. He would not be the Son. But because He is the Son of God, and His works are inseparable. As He's witnessing, the Father is witnessing. He's witnessing because the Father is witnessing. Later in this gospel, near the end, Jesus will speak of another advocate, referring to the Holy Spirit. And here near the beginning, He speaks of another witness, referring to the Father. So some then examine this closing portion of John chapter 5. And they say Jesus brings forth four witnesses. John, the Father, Jesus' own works, and the Scriptures. With the subcategory under the Scriptures being then afterwards specifically Moses. 
Some will even say five witnesses. But I believe what Jesus is saying here is that ultimately, this is what it all hinges on. You have the triune God's witness to Himself. No other is qualified. No, one, no authority stands outside of God to say, hey, God is who He says He is. Ultimately, you have the triune God's witness to Himself. Everything else is subordinate to this. So rather than four witnesses, Jesus is saying there is another witness, singular his Father. And the Father bears witness to His Son by words and works. That's what you have ahead of you in this passage. The Father bearing witness to His Son by words and works. Words, uh, works done in the power of the Spirit and words inspired by the Spirit, both testifying to the Son as the Son. So when Jesus calls forth his first witness, as it appears, he makes it plain that the testimony of John is not for his sake, but for theirs, verse 34. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus does not need John's witness. They need John's witness. He tells them, go back to John. You you rejoiced for a while. As he was testifying to the truth. Go back. Start over. Because he spoke of me. The truth that John bore witness to. Was that he was not. And that Jesus is. John the apostle introduced us to John the Baptist. Saying there was a man sent from God. Whose name was John. He came as a witness. To bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. So John says John is not the light. And here we have Jesus saying John was a bright and shining lamp. John was a lamp as he testified, I am not the light. As he reflected light on Christ, it was then that he was a light. John functions as a witness in the capacity of being a prophet speaking the word of God. John's witness, here's what I want you to see, is the Father's witness. John 1, 29-34. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's witness is a witness to the Father's witness of Christ. He comes as a prophet speaking the Word of God. John's testimony is the Father's testimony. Jesus does not need John's witness because, verse 36, 
He has a greater witness. The Father testifies to Jesus directly. Or, or is it is the greater witness Jesus' works or His Father? Verse 36, The testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Ask yourself, how is it that the Father bears witness to Jesus? By giving Him works to accomplish that demonstrate that the works of the Father and the Son are inseparable, and thus Jesus is the Son. He gives the Son works that only one who is God could do. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Son is acting in such a way, doing the works the Father has given Him, that testify He is the Son. Unlike the synoptics, we don't see the Father as an actor in John's narrative. At Jesus' baptism, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That testimony is repeated again by all three of them and expanded on at His transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen. To him. The only instance that's like that in John comes in chapter 12 in answer to Jesus' prayer. John 12, 27 through 29. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Okay, that sounds like the father stepping onto the stage of the narrative. Then read, we read this. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So in the book of John, the focal way that the father bears witness to his son is by the works that he gives the father that he gives the son to accomplish chapter 5 19 through 21 again truly truly i say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. They are meant to see the works that Jesus does and see them as the testimony of the Father that Jesus is the Son. So, these works are how God is presently testifying to His Son. But there is another way that the Father bears witness to them. It is a way that He has borne witness to them and continues to do so. It's a way that 
should make them more receptive to the way he is bearing witness to Jesus by these works. The Father bears witness by Jesus' works. Verse 36. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus' works bear witness, but also, verse 37, the Father him who sent Him has, has Himself, the Father who sent Him Himself has borne witness. So the Father is bearing witness by Jesus' works, and the Father has borne witness to Jesus in a way that continues to speak to them. How has the Father done this? The indictment of verse 38 answers how it is that the Father has and continues to bear witness to them. But it comes by way of what we see in verse 37 first. The Father who has sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So they are not like Moses. They've not heard God, and they've not seen God. And, verse 38, you do not have His Word abiding in you. The Father has, is bearing witness to them by Jesus' works. The Father has borne witness to them by His words. Those words do not abide in them, and it's for that reason that they do not receive Jesus. You do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. This is despite the fact that they search the Scriptures, verse 39. They rightly search the Scriptures, and rightly do they search them thinking that there is eternal life in them, but they don't understand that the Scriptures testify of Christ and the life that the Scriptures hold out is only to be found in Christ. Luther, in the introduction to his Old Testament that he translated into German, wrote, here you will find, in the Old Testament, here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Jesus spoke to those disciples on the Emmaus road, rebuking them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and these things and enter into His glory? And then Luke adds this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. They search the Scriptures, they search them rightly for eternal life, and they find nothing of it because they don't find Christ therein. They are proud that they found a needle in a haystack, and the problem is, the point wasn't to find the needle, the point was the haystack. The point was lambs need nourishment, and here's this hay that will give eternal life, and they, they walk out of the hay and say, we found the needle, and then they use it to weave their own righteousness. Paul spoke of this failure, saying, 
2 Corinthians 3.14. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. They make their own veil by perverting the Scriptures, blinding them to the Scriptures. So the Father bears witness by the works that He's given Jesus to do. And the Father has borne and continues to bear witness to them by the words that He's given them. They do not see the significance of the signs. They do not get the meaning of the message. Why? Why do not they not believe on the one whom Jesus has sent? Why is it that they refuse to come to Jesus? And Jesus has already given us one answer. It was a negative answer involving the absence of something. They don't have the Word of God abiding in them. Now he's going to give a second answer, but it concerns the presence of something. Verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. It's an odd juxtaposition of truths. I do not receive glory from people, but... I know you do not have the love of God within you. What is Jesus telling us here? Why does He tell us, I do not receive glory from people? He's already told us that He does not need the testimony of John. He doesn't receive the testimony of men. Not that He needs it. Verse 34 Not that the testimony I receive is from man. So he doesn't receive testimony from man. He doesn't receive glory from man. What's the implication? They do not have the love of God abiding in them. That's again a negative statement. What's the positive inference to be drawn from this? They do seek the glory of men. Jesus does not. He doesn't need the testimony of men. He doesn't need glory from men. That's what they seek. And thus it is that they do not have the love of God abiding in them. And that that's what Jesus is saying becomes apparent in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And that that is indeed what they do is spelled out plainly in chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The reason they do not receive this witness to Jesus is because they love the wrong glory. And so it is that if someone comes in his own name, they'll receive him. While Jesus comes in his Father's name, the authorized, the sent, the only begotten, the Son, they reject his witness. But they'll receive a false prophets. Why is that? One reason is because glory-seeking men quickly recognize glory-seeking men and they make packs. I will scratch your back. If you scratch mine, 
False teachers tickle ears that others might tickle their egos. 2 Timothy 4.3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So this being the case, Jesus brings it to this conclusion in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? As long as they operate in the glory exchange of man, in the praise market of sinners, as long as that's where they will and deal, belief remains an impossibility. How can you believe? Saints, we need to see ourselves as being redeemed out of this place of impossibility. This is where we operated in Adam. Seeking the glory and praise of man, giving glory and praise to men. Faith is an impossibility in that place. But it is not impossible for God to grant faith and redemption and repentance. Sinner, if by the word right now you're hearing this and you are despising, you are repulsed by the rejection of these Jews to the witness of the Father to His Son, And not only repulsed by their behavior, but you recognize it in yourself. I want glory from men. I seek glory and recognition. I want praise. I operate in that same marketplace that they do. And I'm rejecting the testimony of the father to a son because it means I have to die to that. It means he gets all the glory. If you're seeing that and you despise and hate it, take comfort. This is a work of God in your heart right now. Don't choke it. Don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. Indulge it. Allow it to come upon you. Allow its weight to set fully on you. Don't try to escape it. And know that what is impossible for you is possible with God. Repent. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Grasp Christ. Believe Christ. Turn from seeking the glory that comes from men and seek the glory that comes from God in Christ. Sinner, you were made for glory. I just pray you would recognize how paltry and how pathetic all the glory that man can give you is. It's all vanity. It's all empty. And how weighty, how awesome, how Magnificent is the glory that God bestows on undeserving sinners in Christ. But know that if God did not bring His incarnate Son into exaltation, but only through humiliation, do not presume to think you will escape the humble road. And it begins with this. Repenting of the handful of pride and arrogance with which you come before God as though you were His judge. 
and realizing that you stand condemned under Him and coming with the empty hands of faith and clinging to Christ and Christ alone, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to Christ I cling as your righteousness and hope and salvation. So this is the second reason they do not come. They don't come because God's Word is not abiding in them. And they do not come because they seek the glory that comes from man. Jesus will give a third reason, which is really a repetition of of the first one. But He introduces it by speaking of their condemnation in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Jesus says, I will not accuse you. Don't think that I accuse you. This goes with what Jesus, what John says in chapter 3, that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is because the world is already condemned. Jesus coming to save presumes condemnation is in place. So the world is already condemned. Jesus has come to save it. All men stand condemned as their conscience bears witness to them with the work of the law, not the law itself written on the heart where they love it, but the work of the law, Romans chapter 2, is written on their heart and men sin against that. We all bear witness to ourselves of our condemnation. But the Jews additionally received special revelation of the law of God through Moses and through that law, Moses not only testifies to their need of a Redeemer, he testifies to the Redeemer that they need. The law speaks of the promised seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. The promised seed of Abraham bringing blessing to the nations. The promised seed of Judah who will subdue all the nations. It speaks of the prophet like Moses, of the Passover lamb, and of the one who will fulfill all the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and the priesthood. But if you don't see where Moses testifies of Christ, well, listen to John Calvin's advice. When Christ says that Moses wrote concerning him, this needs no long proof with those who acknowledge that Christ is the end and soul of the law. But if any person be not satisfied with this and desire to have passages pointed out to him, I would advise him first to read carefully the epistle to the Hebrews. Where does Moses speak of Christ? Read Hebrews. The Jews do not believe Moses Because Moses wrote of Christ. And that is why on this day, they are upset that a man has been healed on the Sabbath rather than rejoicing that Sabbath has been brought to a man. The Word of God does not abide in them. They seek the glory of man They do not believe Moses. The triune God witnesses of Himself. No one else is highly qualified, high high enough qualified to do so. The general revelation of 
creation, providence, and our conscience not only testify to God's glory, but of our falling short of that glory and of His due judgment being upon us right now. And yet, by His special revelation, the Father testifies of His Son by both works and words. This testimony is set before you today. Today is a great day of either salvation or condemnation. You cannot walk away from this testimony in the same state. How is it that this testimony is brought before you right now? By spirit-wrought words testifying to spirit-empowered works. The testimony of the Father that the Son is the Son. John 15, 26-27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And, this is specifically spoken to the twelve, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You will testify about me as I send my Spirit upon you because you've been with me for this purpose. So the Spirit bears witness to the apostles who bear witness to the world by the Word Inspired by the Spirit sent from the Father. John will close his account of the crucifixion writing, He who saw it himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. You are in the dock. Witnesses have been called forth. Not so that you could decide what you think about Jesus. As though He stood under your judgment. They've been called forth because you, a sinner, sit in condemnation before the Father. And in grace, He's putting before you today by His Word. Not a word of judgment. That's already established. You are condemned. He's putting before you a word and a testimony of grace and mercy and salvation and redemption and hope and life everlasting and joy in Christ. And if you will hear this witness, if you will receive it, you'll be saved. Hear this witness, not as my own. Not as John's, but as the Father's witness through John by the Spirit to His Son. The Father testifies to you today by His Word of His Son. Do not reject this witness. Saints, closing, let us remember this. It's good for us to share our testimony. But it is far, far better to share the testimony of the Father to His Son.
And we have that in His words concerning His works. Share the testimony of the Father to the Son because that is what the gospel is. And it is the gospel we're told in Romans 1.16 that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let us gladly tell the Father's testimony to the Son, praying that it will be taken to them in the power of the Spirit, knowing that what is impossible for man is possible with God. Having the hope that thereby they would come to Christ. They would believe on Christ. They would receive Christ. They would trust Christ and have eternal life. Let's pray. Holy Father, what a wondrous thing is your word. It's living and active. It's powerful. We deserve only the testimony of general revelation that an all-glorious God is justly angry against us. Oh, the marvel that you have spoken to us, you've witnessed of your Son. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive fertile soil in which the seed of the gospel grows and out of which eternal life blooms. Father, thank you for this witness and this testimony. Father, we would plead for those who are here, our children, our friends, those who might be among us covenanted with this body, but they are They're really pretending. They don't really know you. Father, we pray and we cry out. They would not worry about the praise and glory from men. They wouldn't worry about others think about them. But they wouldn't love that. But they would love the glory that would come in Christ and clinging to Him as their righteousness and hope. Give them hearts to receive this witness and testimony now. Father, give us boldness as we leave and joy to spread that seed. Joy to tell of your testimony to your Son. Hopeful that your Spirit would take it and make souls new. Father, may we see that harvest. May we see your Spirit work. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.